Hello and welcome to Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads for the week of July 21st. Is this it? I'm your host, Dan Creeder, here with Dan Belton, as we discuss the recent widening in credit spreads and whether or not we should expect more in the near term. Finally, we wrap today's episode with a brief discussion on short-end dynamics, with the July 31st debt ceiling deadline rapidly approaching. Each week, we offer our view on credit spreads, ranging from the highest quality sectors such as agencies and SSAs to investment-grade corporates. We also focus on U.S. dollar swap spreads and all the factors that entails, including funding markets, cross-currency markets, and the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. The topics that come up most frequently in conversations with clients and listeners form the basis for each episode, so please don't hesitate to reach out to us with questions or topics you would like to hear discussed. We can be found on Bloomberg or emailed directly at dan.creter, K-R-I-E-T-E-R, at bmo.com. We value and greatly appreciate your input. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Well, Dan, the move in Treasury yields has without doubt been the dominant theme of the past couple of weeks, but sort of hidden under the surface is we have gotten a little bit of a backup in credit spreads here. High quality sectors in the SSA agency sector are three to five wider and IG corporates are, you know, eight, nine, maybe even 10 basis points wider in the past couple of weeks. And our listeners will know that we've been looking for a buying opportunity in credit in the July-August period here where economic data would start to matter more and technicals weren't as supportive so I guess the question on top of everyone's mind now is, is the 10 basis point backup we've gotten, is that the extent of the buying opportunity or will we see more widening? And I think that's obviously the topic we have to focus on here first today. So Dan, why don't we start by, let me just ask you, how has your view on credit spreads evolved in the past couple of weeks with the big rally in treasuries? Yeah, Dan, so I think certainly given the volatility in treasuries, some amount of underperformance in credit should be expected. And then as long as this continues, we could see a little bit more weakness. I don't tend to believe, in my base case at least, that we're going to get another significant leg wider in credit spreads. I don't expect we're going to see another 15 basis points. Now, in the near term, we could see some more weakness, but we would have to see the global growth picture deteriorate pretty significantly before we got another, you know, real serious leg wider. And there's a lot of structural reasons to expect that credit spreads are going to be pretty well anchored this time around. But I do think if we get another couple basis points of weakness, I'm going to start to look to recommend long positions in credit. Yeah, and I think my view is is pretty well aligned with that. But let's let's dig a little deeper on that. Let's let's play that out and and, and really look at things from both sides to see, you know, really what is the argument for wider spreads here? Because We certainly have seen episodes in the past where that's happened. I think the most applicable environment is the environment of 2015 and 2016, where we saw credit spreads back up as much as 100 basis points alongside a slowdown in emerging market economies that bled into the U.S. economy. And we saw multiple indicators of economic growth in the U.S. start to slow in 2015, 2016. I think that's what we're dealing with right now with the Delta variant. Obviously, that has been the key driving force in the treasury market rally. And if you look at what the Delta variant is really going to mean for the global economy, I think high level, the main impact of Delta is a threat to growth in areas of the world that have lower vaccination rates. Here in the U.S., I actually don't see a massive impact from Delta. I don't think that the Delta variant is going to really meaningfully change anyone's consumption behavior with the economy now really reopened. Certainly, we'll see pockets here and there where there could be a spike in COVID cases in a particular community center or school, and we could see localized shutdowns there. But from a high level, I think the bar to reintroduction of widespread lockdown in the U.S. is quite high. 
and won't come unless we see any evidence of meaningfully reduced effectiveness when it comes to the vaccines. We haven't seen that so far. I mean, early data coming out is that the vaccine remains mostly effective against hospitalizations or death against the Delta variant. Obviously, from an infection standpoint, Delta is demonstrating lower efficacy, but I think people will accept the risk of becoming sick as long as there's not a fear of a more dire outcome. So at least at this stage, I don't expect to see a real impact on consumption domestically, but the same cannot be said abroad. And that's obviously what we're seeing with the big rally in treasuries. I guess the question for me is, at what point does the slowing of global growth expectations transition from a small hiccup in credit you know, that we'd consider a buying opportunity to maybe something more meaningful like in 2015, 2016, when we saw spreads widen a lot more significantly? I agree that the 2015, 2016 experience is probably the most applicable one that we have in recent memory. But I, I view that more as a maybe not worst case scenario, but kind of bad outcome from where we are right now. I think it's possible that the slowdown abroad does not get so bad that it impacts the domestic economy in the same way it did five, six years ago. But that is certainly the possible outcome. I think all that would take is for the current situation with the Delta variant to just get worse over the coming weeks and months. And then we could see more widespread lockdowns abroad, which would in time feed through to energy prices and other goods markets. Now, with respect to credit spreads, you talked about the 100 basis points of widening that we saw in 2015, 2016. I don't think even if we did see a similar impact on the domestic economy, I don't think we would see necessarily the same amount of spread widening for a few reasons. You know, first, we've talked about how lower rates generally correlate with narrower spreads. Ten-year Treasury yields are about 100 basis points lower today than they were before the 2015-2016 flight to quality. But it's hard to imagine anything less than a very severe shock causing credit spreads to widen now from about 80 basis points to 180 basis points or so. And there's the impact of the Fed and their demonstrated willingness to step in and backstop corporate markets. I think that would enhance any perceived buying opportunity given a moderate degree of weakness, call it 20 to 30 basis points or so. Then there's just the accumulated experience. 2015, 2016, that 100 basis points of widening probably looked like a decent buying opportunity after a little bit of hindsight. So I think if we did see this global slowdown realized, um, and if it did feed into you know, the U.S. economy, we could see some amount of back, back up in the 30 to 50 basis point range in credit spreads. But that's, again, not the worst case scenario, but probably a bad outcome from where we sit right now. Again, I'm in agreement with you. I really don't see a significant widening in credit here from a global growth perspective. It would truly take a redefining event, I think, for spreads to rewiden here. I mean, I, at 120 to 130, depending on what minute it is right now in treasuries, we've already priced in a significant revision, if you will, of global growth prospects. And certainly that can get worse. But I think then, to your point about accumulated experience, then investors will just slide back into the mode that they've grown comfortable with in the past decade, which is yield enhancement is the name of the game. We're likely going to have low growth for the next couple of years. And so any incremental yield you can get is where you want to be playing it. It would take, for me, most likely widespread failure of the vaccine or, or something similar, where people are, again, afraid to emerge, whether you're in a vaccinated jurisdiction or not. I think it's just human nature to sort of be putting the pandemic in the rearview mirror at this point, despite Delta. And it would take almost a return to the mentality of early 2020, I think, for growth concerns to result in still further significant widening from here, which is why for me, somewhat counterintuitively, given the big rally in treasuries here, the main threat to credit spreads remains actually inflation. 
And, you know, we've seen inflation coming in hot. Everyone expected that. It's maybe even a little hotter than people thought, but it continues to be driven by pockets of inflation here and there that are just idiosyncratic factors related to reopening. We all know the used car story, things like that, that are expected to clear up. But I just want to say that given Delta, you can actually make an argument that inflationary concerns might be a little bit exasperated here by Delta. And again, I'm talking about the divergence between the vaccination rates in North America and perhaps the rest of the world that drive the global supply chain. I mean, obviously, we know that a lot of the driving force behind this quote-unquote transitory inflation has been a temporary disruption in global supply chains as a result of the virus that will now theoretically clear up. But the Delta variant is inherently a continuation of those supply chain disruptions, right? I mean, you could see those supply chain disruptions last a little bit longer. And then if we see a weak consumer, we've already seen, you know, the University of Michigan confidence survey starting to turn down. Consumers already sort of becoming wary about higher prices here. You could see a sort of worst case scenario for corporations where because of inflation, the cost of their inputs is going higher and higher, and they're not able to pass those costs along to a weaker consumer or a consumer content to wait for prices to fall. And then that, for me, potentially unleashes more downgrade default fears that could push spreads meaningfully wider. Yeah. And to that point, in a sense, it's almost the worst case scenario from the standpoint of inflation is high today, but inflation expectations, at least if you look at market-based measures, you know, 10-year break-evens are no higher today than they were you know, in the first and second quarter of this year. The consumer has a lot of reason then to wait to make some of these bigger purchases, to wait and make a car purchase or other consumer durables if they think that inflation is high right now, but maybe going to come back in the next few months. So that just adds to some possible weakness we could see in the domestic economy just from the standpoint of the consumer. It's a great point, but there is some nuance there because what you're talking about, the lack of growth because people are waiting for prices to come down, I think that's just a component of this slower growth story that ultimately I think translates into a yield grab mentality that sends spreads to new lows uh, through the levels we've seen in the past couple months that were historical lows. The concern for me would be if you start to see the opposite of that, where you see inflation actually start to pick up. Certainly, we've seen evidence of wage inflation or pockets of wage inflation with the struggle to get workers back from the sidelines, whether that's because of health concerns or family concerns or or stimulus, who knows? So as we get into the fall months and extraordinary stimulus starts to run off, are we going to see those workers return to the labor force that's going to ultimately ease those wage pressures? Or could we actually see actual inflation? I tend to think not, but Certainly after the market move of the past couple of weeks, inflation to me is the key threat to credit spreads here. And, and that sort of transitions the conversation nicely to next week's Fed meeting, which is suddenly important now because we've seen the shift in the central bank's attitude toward inflation. Obviously, we know about inflation targeting and the Fed's willingness to tolerate a higher inflation rate. But that's been more words than actions, at least to me. If you look at the June meeting and the minutes from the June meeting, it does seem like you know, we, we heard the Fed start talking about inflation being potentially more persistent or higher than they may have thought. And the June meeting as a whole seemed a bit more hawkish. So if we go to the July meeting, is the Fed going to continue down the path of tapering and maybe be more tolerant of inflation in words than action? Or are we going to see the Fed double down on letting inflation run hot, potentially introducing some more? This is not necessarily going to happen in the July meeting, but over the course of the next few Fed meetings? Are we going to see the Fed start to talk about employment targets, potentially targets for employment in certain sectors of the labor market, and really 
drive the narrative that they're going to tolerate high inflation? Or is it going to be the other way? Because if we see the Fed really reiterating its commitment to inflation running hot, I think that could be a negative for credit at this point. Not my base case. I think the Fed is going to continue down the path of tapering here and that ultimately being constructive for credit, maybe even that's a little counterintuitive. What's your read on the Fed situation? Yeah, so this meeting is going to be pretty interesting, I think. Chair Powell, on one hand, has to acknowledge and speak on the risks to the global economy. But he also, I think, has to keep the potential for tapering later this year on the table. And so it's going to be interesting to see both how he perceives the global risks and then if there's any clues to what the Fed's reaction function is given these risks. I am more of the view that, well, I think he's going to keep the potential for tapering on the table, he's going to reiterate the comfort that the Fed has with inflation where it is right now. We've had very high inflation in the second quarter. But if you look at inflation expectations, like I just talked about a few minutes ago, break-evens do not suggest that we're getting this type of runaway inflation that's going to be characterized by expectations of inflation, be getting more inflation, and, and so on and so forth. So I think that adds a little bit to the Fed's comfort. Now, inflation break-evens aren't necessarily the same as a consumer-based measure of inflation. But generally, we're not seeing much of a move in inflation expectations over the longer term. So I think that adds to the Fed's comfort with where policy is right now. Now, as far as the Fed tapering or not, that doesn't really do much for the global growth story. That's going to be more, frankly, of a health crisis than a matter of Fed policy. So Fed effectiveness is going to be fairly limited as it relates to this most recent flight to quality bid. Yeah, I want to be very clear on one point after what you just said. I'm not saying I expect there to be runaway inflation. I don't think there will be. I'm just trying to make the case that inflation is actually the largest threat to credit spreads, even after what we've seen in these past couple of weeks with the big treasury rally. And, you know, you talked about the Fed's tapering plans, and I agree with them. And sticking with the theme of paradoxes here, I actually think the Fed moving away from tapering plans could be a negative for credit at this point, because the Fed's tapering plan has been so well telegraphed, so well understood by the market, and so strongly expected to be coming, you know, July, maybe some hints. Jackson Hole, they're going to talk more meaningfully about it. End of the year, we'll get an announcement for implementation either late this year or early next year. If the Fed doesn't follow through with that, I think that may even end up sending a signal to the markets that, okay, so the Fed is more concerned about growth than maybe we thought, and things could be worse than we thought, and, and maybe that's a negative for credit, both from growth perspective and then also the ramifications on what it could mean for inflation. That sort of high inflation with a weak consumer outlook that we were discussing earlier in the podcast is potentially the worst outcome for credit. I think the Fed derailing tapering could be a step towards that. So I guess just to bring this all together to sort of a bottom line, I think this might be the extent of the buying opportunity. You're close to it. You know, I wouldn't be surprised if spreads leak a little bit wider, particularly in the summer with thin markets. But I don't think we're going to see more significant widening. Now, it wouldn't surprise me if spreads continue to bang around at a little bit of a higher in equilibrium here for the next couple months, particularly with technicals not really on the market side ahead of expected supply in, in September and people potentially looking to the primary market rather than putting money to work in secondaries here. But I don't think there'll be much more widening. And then ultimately, you know, later on in the year, once we get through sort of this soft patch from a technical perspective, you know, if you look to forward to October, November, maybe even December, it wouldn't surprise me to see spreads breaking through the lows that we've had already. Is that generally in line with what you're expecting as well? Yeah, I think once we get through this period of volatility, I think spreads are going to be fairly well bid. The next hurdle over the medium term I see is, you know, not the Fed's announcement of tapering, but 
the actual mechanical impact of Fed tapering, allowing more treasuries and MBS to clear the market without its support. But in the medium term, I'd say I'm fairly constructive on spreads. Yeah, we're on the same page there. I do think that could be a headwind for spreads, but I think that's more of a 2022 story. For the second half, for me, as long as we don't get another significant repricing of the path of COVID with vaccine efficacy being called into serious question here, I think the path looks pretty clear from here on out for spreads to resume narrowing after this little mini buying opportunity that admittedly maybe wasn't as significant as we were hoping in the months leading up to this buying opportunity we were expecting. All right, Dan. Well, um, before we wrap today's episode, I wanted to just talk about the short end a little bit. We haven't talked about it much in recent episodes. And frankly, that's because there really hasn't been a whole lot to discuss. But now we are, what, just 10 days away from the debt ceiling deadline where the expectation was some of the short end dynamics could start to change. And I guess backing up, we've seen swap spreads generally trade in that same range they have for the majority of the year, you know, a couple basis point range, given how anchored everything is at the short end. But now the debt ceiling's coming, maybe things are going to start to shake loose. But I guess let's start our conversation on the short end here. Looking at the Bloomberg page this morning, Treasury's cash balance is still at about $700 billion. Now, guidance they gave us at the last quarterly refunding was that they were going to drop that cash balance to $450 billion. That's $250 billion in the next, what, 10 days or less. That strikes me as a lot, which made me start to think, okay, well, then maybe Treasury isn't going to get their cash balance down to four fifty. dollars Certainly, over the course of the past year, we've seen Treasury run much higher cash balances than they had laid out as expected in their quarterly refundings. Trouble for me, though, is that at least my understanding of it is that that $450 billion is how Treasury was interpreting where their cash level had to be from a debt ceiling perspective. So what are your thoughts there? Yeah, it's hard to say. It's hard to predict where Treasury's cash balances will be in the next 10 days. You could see a scenario potentially where Treasury comes out with a different interpretation of what the law states their cash balances can be at the debt ceiling deadline. And maybe they come up $100 billion or over that $450 billion mark. Regardless, I think we're going to see some further declines in Treasury's cash balances, maybe $250 billion, maybe a little bit less than that. But that's just going to mean more pressure on the front end that we've been seeing for most of this year. So RRP volumes are going to remain high. Bill issuance is going to remain low and, and get lower over the next couple of weeks. But then after we pass this debt ceiling deadline and eventually get to a resolution, we're going to start to see these pressures that have characterized most of this year start to fade. We're going to see this collateral cash imbalance start to normalize gradually. I don't think it's going to be something that happens immediately after the debt ceiling resolution, but things should start to gradually move in the opposite direction. I think that's what we're all waiting for here. But really trying to hammer it on when that's going to happen is very difficult because I'm certainly not expecting them to reach a resolution by July 31st on the debt ceiling, which means then we have to start trying to figure out when the drop dead or X date is. And I think obviously everyone knows there's way less certainty around that now. Certainly we don't have any, you know, detailed calculations for when that's coming. We rely on the same resources as everybody else. And it does seem like it'll be September, October. But we do have Secretary Yellen coming out recently in the press saying that it could happen as early as August. And her fear is they're going to run out of cash while the lawmakers are on recess in August. I don't know. I can't know how realistic that is or if she's just trying to sort of goad Congress into passing a suspension or raise of the debt ceiling before July 31st. We've seen Treasury Secretary sort of speak somewhat from a doomsday standpoint on this just to get Congress into action. So what do we know about when the extraordinary measure starts? We know that 
Treasury's not going to be running up its cash balance during that time, obviously, or not meaningfully, maybe a little bit here and there, but not meaningfully, given their inability to issue debt freely. And that's going to stretch for the next couple months. So I just can't see at this point any meaningful changes to the ample reserve regime that we have at the short end that's keeping front-end rates extremely low. I think they're going to stay pinned very, very low here. LIBOR OIS is, what, five basis points or less. Last I looked, reached a low of around two basis points. Our view that it could reach zero in the short term, it hasn't been realized, but you know, in spirit, it has held relatively well. And I, I wouldn't be surprised by some more narrowing there in the next couple of weeks. So I, I think short end spreads really just confined to the range without you know really any hope to get off the mat here, at least until we have a more lasting resolution to the debt ceiling at some point in time in the fall. And so from a swap spread perspective, I think steepeners that trade has performed for us. We're like six basis points in the money on that. And the drivers of it are still in place for me. I think you still see front end rates pinned down. The SLR is still out there looming. We don't know when that's going to come. Who knows if it's even going to come this year at this point, but it could come any day really. And if and when it does, I think that would be a widener for belly spread. So I, I still continue to like the steepener. One quick note on the debt thing that we didn't cover, Dan, is the potential that it turns into an event for credit, it's obviously not a strong possibility. But if you go back to when S&P downgraded the U.S. government in 2011, when the debt ceiling was really maybe the most contentious that I can remember, at least, it came down to the very last minute, we saw spreads widen and we saw real investor anxiety around the debt ceiling. Now, we've gotten more used to it since 2011, for sure. But this episode has the makings of potentially coming down to the wire. Do you see a scenario where investors maybe get a little rattled by the debt ceiling and and you see any impact on credit? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly a possibility that we have to acknowledge. I think the political climate in Washington is very divisive right now. And politicians could certainly use this as a bargaining chip. And it's possible that we see that. I don't know that it gets as far as it got in 2011. It's possible, but not in the base case. I'd say the ingredients are there. I mean, I agree it would be not a smart move to make that a base case expectation, but the ingredients are certainly there from a political perspective. And I don't think it seems to me like the market isn't as concerned about the debt ceiling this time around. With each episode, we become less and less concerned with it. And I think that's the right interpretation, but keep that on the radar because that could be something that's a more important trading theme in the next few months with ramifications both for potential yields and credit. And then, Dan, one more short-end topic that I thought we should touch on today, given its timeliness, was some releases from the ARC this morning regarding the transition from LIBOR to SOFR. I guess the headliner being that they expect to have term SOFR in place shortly after the July 26th cutover from interdealer trading referencing LIBOR to now referencing SOFR. This was in our base case from essentially right when they announced that July 26th, 27th deadline. So this comes as no surprise, really. Maybe there was a little meat on the bone with some recommendations that ARC made regarding the usage of term SOFR. I noted that they talked about what asset classes they recommended term SOFR being used for, specifically containing that to business loans, some syndicated loans, certain securitizations. They did not recommend it for use with floating rate notes. So it looks like we can continue to look forward to using lookbacks and lockouts and observational shifts and all that fun stuff with FRNs. But I think the market's pretty well understanding of that at this point. One other thing there, they talked about the use of term SOFR and derivatives. And while they said that they continued to favor backward-looking SOFR for the majority of derivatives, they did recommend potentially using term SOFR and derivative markets used to hedge assets that are denominated in term SOFR. So 
that's at least something worth noting. There is currently no derivative market that trades term sulfur, so that will theoretically have to develop. And that's one of the many things, actually, we're looking for in the next six months. It's going to be crucial from a transition away from LIBOR perspective. Which rate are these banks going to select as their lending rate? Will it be SOFR? Will it be Bisbee? Things have been pretty quiet on the Bisbee front, but we've seen some more loans coming out, public loans that you can find on Bloomberg coming out referencing Bisbee. Uh, Right before we walked away from the desk to record this podcast, actually, I think I saw some chatter on another issuance from a Canadian bank referencing Bisbee. So, you know, Bisbee's starting to crop up again. It's really just going to be a crucial couple months here. Are we going to see, you know, some significant pickup in Bisbee denominated assets that will then also have to be hedged, term SOFR assets that will have to be hedged potentially with term SOFR derivatives? What's that going to look like? You know, nothing we can really comment on today. Just be on the lookout because it's going to be a significant factor for derivative market participants specifically over the next few months as we start to see a more meaningful shift away from LIBOR. Dan, did you have anything else from the ARC announcement uh, that we should talk about a little bit? No, just to reiterate, this was pretty much as expected. The ARC stated that it would have the term rate available shortly after that July 26th switchover. They just today really reiterated that guidance. And then the guidance about use of term SOFR versus overnight SOFR. We've known that the regulators are going to prefer the use of overnight SOFR. We talked about the potential for cannibalization of term SOFR in a scenario where too many users were referencing term SOFR, not enough trading overnight SOFR derivatives, which would then make a problem the fact that term SOFR is based on overnight SOFR derivatives. So then every product that is able to use overnight SOFR, the ARC is going to recommend that they use that, whereas term SOFR be sort of reserved for the products that cannot use overnight SOFR in arrears. Yep. Term SOFR is there only if you need it. Okay. Well, I think that wraps up our conversation for today. But before we go, on a quick programming note, we're going to be off from the Macro Horizons High Quality Spreads podcast for a couple of weeks here because my esteemed colleague, Danny Belton, is getting married and headed on his honeymoon. So... I'm going to wish Danny a big congratulations, give him a standing ovation, and assume everyone else is joining me in that. So, Dan, enjoy your honeymoon. Congratulations. And we will be back here come August. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com slash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy efforts as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. Please email us at daniel.belton, B-E-L-T-O-N, at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show is supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been edited and produced by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. 
Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interests in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of, issuers and companies mentioned herein. Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal. 